What is a life lesson that you've learned that you would consider worth passing on to others? I'm not referring to some practical advice that you might give, but imparting that deeper level of understanding that we call wisdom, the kind of insight and awareness that is hard-earned and not easy to come by. Our American education system is all about transmitting knowledge, but not about teaching children and youth how to navigate life with mindfulness and good judgment. Similarly, our society values material gains, success, and winning over development of character and personal growth. In such a results-driven culture, how do we get wisdom? We could all use a little more wisdom right about now. Life has proven difficult and unpredictable. We may know how life works most of the time, but wisdom tell us how, tells us how life works best. One commentator introduces the wisdom from Proverbs this way. What is right and what pays may travel long distances together, but it leaves, in, leaves us in no doubt which we are to follow when their paths diverge. Today we begin a five-week sermon series, Wisdom for Daily Living from Proverbs. You might think that a collection of Proverbs in the Bible would be about matters of faith. Not so. Only a few take up that subject. Thus, our sermons for this series address other themes in Proverbs related to our use of words, leadership, parenting, caring for others, and friendship. Derek Kidner, who has written a commentary on the Proverbs, describes this practical down-to-earth quality of wisdom found in the book of Proverbs this way. It is a book which seldom takes you to church. It calls across to you in the street about some everyday matter or, port or points things out at home. Proverbs are not alternatives to God's grace, but means of grace. The kind of wisdom found here is about the stuff of life, and that takes up most of our time and results in either making us smile or frown, causing us grief or joy. It teaches us how to live a life we might call good because it offers coherence, value, and meaning. A proverb is a short, pithy saying that states a general truth based on common sense or lived experience. It often comes across as sound advice. Proverbs make use of form formulaic language and metaphorical themes, such as, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a downcast spirit dries up the bones. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are the lazy to their employers. Most Hebrew wisdom literature is presented in poetic form. A characteristic of Hebrew poetry is a literary technique known as parallelism. When two successive lines repeat a theme, the parallelism is considered synonymous. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. When the second line forms a contrast, the parallelism is called antithetical. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Typical of Hebrew wisdom is to instruct by showing a contrast or delineating two opposing views. There's a right way and a wrong way. The right way in this instance is to fear God. The wrong way is to, is to deny or discount God. The former is the way of wisdom. The latter is foolishness. From a modern point of view, the directive to fear God seems more about religious extremism than wise instruction. But the phrase fear of the Lord is much broader than it sounds, not about being afraid of God, but being in awe of God's greatness and God's goodness, which generates a response of adoration, worship, thankfulness, and love. There may be an aspect of intimidation, but not a fear of getting in trouble or being punished, but rather of offending someone you love. In Genesis 22.12, the first mention of this phrase, the fear of the Lord, Abraham is commended for putting his trust in God. The two scripture passages <clears throat> we are about to hear relate this emphasis of wisdom to trust God. The first is from Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8, and the second from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 through 21. Let us listen as Patrice Freire reads them for us. Our scripture readings today come from Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, and Mark 10, 17 through 21. Reading from Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own insight. In all your ways acknowledge God, and the Lord will make straight your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing for your flesh and a refreshment for your body. From Mark as Jesus was sitting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. One of the all-time great lines spoken by a pastor comes from the 1993 film, Rudy, about the life story of Rudy Rudiger. His dream was to play football for the University of Notre Dame. When his application was denied, he chose to attend a nearby junior college in the hopes of being accepted as a transfer student 
and then he would attempt to make the team as a walk-on. But with each successive application, he is denied. Down to his last chance, he goes to the chapel to pray. There he encounters a priest, Father Kavanaugh, and he appeals to him asking if he could be of help. And here is what the pastor says. Son, in 35 years of religious study, I have only come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I am not him. That line encapsulates the message of Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. There is a God, and it's not me. More than a statement of faith and humility, it's an honest assessment of the world and my place in it. Prior to the 1500s, nearly everyone believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. That was until Polish scientist Nicholas Copernicus proposed that the planets instead revolved around the Sun. Other astronomers built on Copernicus's work and proved that our planet is just one world orbiting one star in a vast cosmos loaded with both, and that we're far from being the center of anything. Copernicus advanced his theory in a book on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, published in 1543, just two months before he died. If he had lived longer, who knows what kind of opposition and backlash he would have endured. Accusations of disinformation, a conspiracy theory, or fake news. Sixty years after its publication, the Catholic Church banned his book, and Protestant leaders like Martin Luther discredited it. But wisdom always entails challenging society's conventions. Unless we can remove ourselves from the self-centered and narrow-minded conventions and expectations of everyday life, wisdom is likely to elude us. We've progressed in our understanding of astronomy, having accepted a heliocentric solar system. However, it seems many people today have replaced the sun as the center of our universe with humanity as the center, as if the world revolves around me. Again, for us to gain wisdom, we have to look beyond ourselves to see if, to see there is a reality that transcends the self. This is why the proverb suggests we take God seriously and ourselves less so. There is a God, and it's not me. Accepting this difference is the first step toward getting wisdom. Unlike most proverbs, this one is several lines presented in parallel structure. The first and third form an inverted contrast. Trust God, not yourself. Do not achieve wisdom on your own. Start with God. Deny the influence of evil. Between the first and third line is an extension of thought on how to trust God and the results of doing so. Make everything you do include God. Then God will direct your life choices <clears throat> and bless the outcomes. This result is reiterated in the fourth line. 
This awareness and allegiance to God invigorates and revitalizes your whole being. I learned the wisdom of trusting God this way from a man named Ed Hickman. Ed was my mentor while serving as a seminary intern at Fresno First Presbyterian Church. Ed taught me how to take God seriously and myself less so. Ed himself grew up aspiring to become a sheriff, but by the time I met him, he was president of the largest financial institution throughout the entire San Joaquin Valley. Ed was the kind of leader who commanded attention, yet was equally personable, personal and accessible to hundreds of employees throughout Guarantee Savings and Loan. Ed was comfortable in his own skin. He could be vulnerable and self-deprecating, but never at the risk of losing dignity or respect in the eyes of others. His confidence and comfort level made everyone around him follow suit. You could be yourself around Ed, and he would commend you for it. At the same time, you knew he expected you to be your best. If Ed was speaking to a large group and happened to make a mistake, he would invite his audience to laugh with him or address the mistake in such a way that people valued his honesty and authenticity, and they had come to identify with his humanity rather than think less of him. He was unapologetic about his faith and trust in God. He didn't preach it, but he lived it consistently and courageously. Because God came first for Ed, everything else about his life was ordered accordingly. Before Ed's influence, I was afraid of making a mistake or of taking a risk that might jeopardize my sense of self-worth or my image. Ed helped me see that life is too important to be taken that seriously. It's okay to make a mistake and own it. It's necessary sometimes to laugh at yourself and join others who may have gotten a head start. Better to be yourself than someone you're not. My adult children have a way of keeping me from being too serious. They are ever ready and willing to call out one of my flaws, especially if it brings my role as pastor and leader into focus. If we're out to dinner with guests and it's time to offer a prayer before the meal, they will ask me with everyone listening, Dad, are we going to pray to God or just pray to ourselves? Our guests look startled. My children have never forgotten the time we were in a noisy restaurant. And what I meant to say was, let's pray silently. Instead, what came out was, let's pray to ourselves as if there is no God to hear us. Ed Hickman helped me to enjoy how humorous life is and how to enjoy the way others express it. I recall a time when I met a church member at the hospital waiting room. I was there to pray with them ahead of surgery. The room was filled with people, both those who were patients and those who were family members of patients waiting to hear the results. We decided I would pray after the person was taken into pre-op. And while waiting there, a nurse came into the middle of the room looking for a relative. She called out the name, 
Mr. Ferguson, a man who looked to be in his 90s, slowly rose to his feet and began to shuffle toward the nurse. She said, I can take you to your wife now. He cleared his throat and asked, is it a boy or a girl? Startled, the nurse looked back at her chart to see if she called the right name and then realized he was not serious. With a smile, she replied, it's twins. The entire room erupted in laughter. More than a gesture of humor, it was a reminder that life is a gift to be enjoyed. Besides putting ourselves at the center, some people find other things to put there, such as money. In the New Testament story from Mark, a young man asked Jesus, what must he do to inherit eternal life? The presupposition behind his question is, what do I need to do to be good enough? Jesus challenges him to take God more seriously than that. You need to learn what it means to rely on God's goodness instead of your own, he seemed to be telling the young man. Jesus proceeds to teach him with what that means. You know the commandments. To which the man replies, all these I've kept since my youth. Mark tells us, looking at him, Jesus loved him. The man was sincere and earnest in his efforts, but he was relying on himself. Then Jesus puts the man's trust in God to the test. You lack one thing, sell what you own, give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Mark says the man went away very sad because he had many possessions. Whether in the realm of religious instruction or financial management, the man thought he could meet his own needs. Jesus invited him to trust God rather than his own resources. But he was unwilling to shift from a place of self-reliance to one of dependence on God. The opposite of trusting God is considered foolish. It's not a mental deficiency, but a spiritual condition. Knowing change is needed, some choose to take a detour, and they'll attempt a self-improvement plan or try a different path. Yet there comes a time when a person who gives God the stiff arm to keep a safe distance knows that his or her plans are a dead end. Maybe when we reach that point, we might be willing to admit to ourselves and to God that we've gone far enough down the wrong path. We've squandered enough time and energy, wasted enough money, said more damaging and hurtful words than we can possibly take back. And we've reached the point that we're willing to admit that we can't make life work on our own. We've tried and we've grown tired from trying. Wisdom invites us to become a God-fearer, to take that courageous and life-giving step of saying, there is a God who is powerful and personal and more than anything wants an intimate relationship with me. If I am ever to become wise and make wise choices, then this is where I start. 
I accept the invitation to follow this less than obvious path, but one that convinces me God's promise of forgiveness and grace is worth staking my life on. May it be so. Amen.